I think it's a very interesting time. I mean, it's never been, you know, it's, it's as competitive as it's ever been. But I still think at the end of the day, if you want to be a great storyteller, and if storyteller, storytelling is what interests you at your heart, then there's no better place to be than an agency. I've done stuff for CVS Health, some stuff for Snickers, some stuff for Pepsi and Frito-Lay. AT&T was a client I also worked on, and I also worked on a bunch of new business for them. Well, David Lubars, thanks for joining me today, Chairman and Cre Chief Creative Officer at BBDO. You've been in the business for many years. You've overseen client, you know, work for clients including AT&T, GE, Mars is is another client, FedEx. You know, you've seen so much change take place in this industry. Welcome to the Frequent Arts Question Podcast, where we focus on creating tangible ways for creatives to move forward with their careers. Hi, I'm Erica Wall, a lecturer at the Sauter School of Business at the University of British Columbia and a lecturer at the Emily Card University of Art and Design. Please use the comment section so we know what is working for you, what additional information that you need so we can really be there for you. Thank you for your time and interest in the creative industry, more specifically, the intersection between the creative industry and business and how we can work with each other to create a wider dialogue and inclusivity in opportunities. Hi. Hi, my name is Bennett Bennett. I am a consultant. So a lot of the stuff that I do is in creative direction and I also run a nonprofit. What do you study? I studied advertising and public relations. Okay. How long have you been in this position for? What did your career trajectory look like? It looked like a lot of things. So I laughed because I started college as a physics major and had no idea that I'd be in in the ad industry. Uh, so my as a physics major. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I just want to make sure I heard the right thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was a physics major when I started college. Fun times and. Yeah, no. So my trajectory has been in quite a few places. I've worked at my first proper job out of college was at a branding firm called Interbrand in their verbal identity department. So I was an associate consultant in, the, in that practice. Second job, I was a copywriter slash creative resident at a global agency called BBDO. Uh, they're headquartered in New York. Uh, after that, I was a media reporter covering uh, advertising media and special topics in creativity and innovation for a Scottish-based publication called The Drum. And then for the last, I would say, four or five years, I've either been freelancing as a creative or creative director uh, or strategist. And also for the last three years, building my nonprofit called 600 and Rising. Am I correct to sum up sort of the, the different parts of your career where there were salaried positions? Yes. And then there were also freelance positions. Did they happen simultaneously or was it like sort of one after another? Some, for the most part, it was salaried work and then transitioning out of agency life i actually took a freelance role with the drum which i ended up working at months later my last proper role where i was a creative director 
an independent agency in Atlanta, Georgia called 22 Squared. Before I got that job full time, I was doing freelance work for them. So there have been stints where I've been completely freelance, stints where I've been completely full time. And then there have been stints where I've been full time, but also taking on freelance work. So let's backtrack a little bit. So we paint a fuller picture. BBDO. Yes. BBDO is a very large advertising agency. If anyone isn't familiar with the brand, they are global. They exist pretty much in every large city, if I'm not mistaken. Some of their clients include, like, who did you work on? Like, what types of client projects did you work on? Quite a bit. When I was there, CVS Health was a client. I've done stuff for CVS Health, some stuff for Snickers, some stuff for... I guess Pepsi and Frito-Lay. AT&T was a client I also worked on, and I also worked on a bunch of new business for them. Great. So, like, definitely a really big agency. Really big agency, yeah. No, I forget that Bacardi was a client that I worked on for a considerable time there, too. So what does agency life actually look like? Because I think that, you know, as an outsider, I am familiar with certain job titles and rules, which I I think that I'm not even 100% sure whether I know them accurately or not. So can you sort of like walk us through what the positions are and what do they do? And how does that sort of like feed in into the hierarchy to go and make up this organization? Sure. Uh, Well, there's three core disciplines at what we would consider a traditional advertising agency. One of those disciplines is account. So you usually have account managers, supervisors, executives. Usually it's AE, so account executive first, and then AM, which is account manager, account supervisor, or account, yeah, account supervisor usually is on top. And then, you know, you kind of have directors of each of the different lines of business that usually are you know, above the account supervisor role. Then you have strategy. Strategy is literally, it's an interesting department. It's very hard to get in because I, I wish I knew the reason why. You have to kind of be trained a certain way or have a certain amount of experience. One, just understanding both brands, uh, on a holistic sense, but consumer behaviors. And through those consumer behaviors, whether that's uh, spending, you know, on on things they spend, on the kinds of media they consume, or just how they live their lives, you know, what the core, you know, each of the strategists in that department are figuring out insights that will best shape creative end product. So you have media strategists, you have comm strategists communications strategists, uh, you have behavioral slash brand strategists. Uh, it goes on and on and on. Basically you are very much person who is charting out the plan and working alongside the account person to build what's called a creative brief. I know there's probably going to be a follow-up question to what a creative brief is. So to really distill it down to its purest form, any client on the brand side reaches out to an agency and delivers a, you know, delivers a request to them saying, Hey, we want to 
attract millennials or Gen Zers or boomers or all of the above in a creative way that we can promote our product, have us be the leader in a category, potentially launch a brand. And it is the account person's job to take the client information. It is the strategist's job to take the people information. So, you know, what are consumers up to? And they tag team fusion dance style to make what's called a creative brief, which then leads me to the creative department. So there are different kinds of creatives. Most of my work has been on the writing side as a copywriter, but you have copywriters, you have art directors, you have designers, you have some, in some agencies, technologists and others that may be more social first, you'll see more social, you know, there will be a separate social department, but creative wise, you kind of have those three positions, usually art directors and copywriters tag team together. Designers sometimes tag team, you know, or are kind of thrown off to the side to to do any ancillary work for them. And all of those creatives report to what's known as a creative director. So creative director is usually the quarterback, so to speak, of a project. They are the, the ones execute usually executing and or approving of the executions that less senior creatives or well, more junior creatives are are coming up with the creative director's job is to make sure that the idea feels very on brief for on brief as in you know on point according to the creative brief and then approves it and is usually the person presenting these ideas to the client Perfect. So I'm just going to link some of these things together. So you've taken the project management class with me, then what it sounds like is the creative brief for being on brief would probably be referring back to the scope statement or project yeah. charter to make sure that everyone who is meant to go and be on the project, they know what they're doing. What does the scope look like? How long does it take? What is the budget, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Specifically to the strategist position, it sounds like there's some sort of behavioral economics, which is probably related to psych. So like the psych, if you have a first degree in psych, that might be really useful, but then that is tied together with some business skills. So you're able to understand and analyze some of these behavioral economics and, and calculate some sort of KPI or like key performance index or some metrics in order for the company to be able to go and hold something accountable or like manageable in order for you to go and run that project, which again, you're referring back to your project, like your scope statement. So that's sort of like where I see in terms of like some of the things that we talked about and how do we link some of the different departments back into their skill set from what they're learning currently in business school. Hey, so thank you for like sort of going through that mapping because like, I mean, I definitely didn't know that. So like that's super useful for me. I know that you have done so much client work and, and it, client managing client relationships is something that we know it's tricky, especially if you have never dealt with clients before, even if you were in customer service, I think it's different because 
when you're working with a client, for me specifically, I feel like it's always some sort of efficient expedition because the client, and please tell me if I'm wrong, clients rarely know what they're looking for. And it's quite loose. They give you these sort of like undefined words and terms to say like, I want this. And then you pitch whatever it is that you think they're looking for. And then rarely is it actually what it is. Like it's something completely different. You're like, okay, so how do I, what does that look like on your end in terms of managing clients in like every capacity? Expectations, how do you start a conversation with them? How do you maintain that relationship? Are you pitching? When is it time to call it quits? Like what does that, what has your experience like I guess, what has your experience taught you in terms of client management? Clients are, I think, clients who usually know their company, know their brand, know their needs. They're usually great. Not every client knows. There are, I've gotten to work with startups. I've also gotten to work with multinational corporations. And you'd be surprised at who knows more about themselves than the other. I think it probably might be easiest to like kind of break down by how you first engage with a client. Sometimes they come to you and that can come by referral or just by word, you know, just connecting with them directly. You know, I, I think to attain that client, you at least have to have some sort of portfolio or resume to say, Hey, I'm qualified enough to, to do this work not just do this work, but at a high level and at a value that you'll appreciate. Keeping that client happy usually means that you stick to everything you set in front of them to begin with. So if it, if you have to make a, if you have to make social assets for a campaign, for example, maybe 20 posts for a month's worth of content, then your job is Kind of to do that, you know, you have to set a time frame in which you can get that work completed. One, leave room for usually at least one check-in or review with the client to make sure that they at least see the work, know that it's good, or at least on track with where they're going at. So if you're not putting those guardrails in place, like, okay, let's do a check-in after a week, let's do a check-in after two weeks then you're missing out on key components of like proper communication with with them so i'd say setting those terms up front making sure you have regularly scheduled check-ins with the client to see how things are progressing and then making sure that the end product is up to up to that standard you know you can't necessarily control everything you also can't read your client's mind which definitely means that, you know, if you have questions during that, during that time or something comes up, it definitely helps to make sure that you communicate with that client ASAP so that they're not left in the dark and you're also not left wondering. And if clients come up with other asks during that period, it also becomes a potential point to either renegotiate what you have con- contracted with them or build out a whole separate scope. 
So I don't know. I, I think there were kind of a lot of questions tied into the whole client engagement part, but I think communication is always going to be the first imperative, quick, timely communication, but also fair and firm if things get out of hand, because, you know, your job is to do things to the best of your ability. And some clients may have a better understanding of that than others. Learning to be firm within that is, is super critical. Managing expectations. I think it's like, that was one thing that was really hard for me to go and learn to go and say to the client, like, this is what I'm hearing. This is what you're looking for. This is a realistic time frame of what it is that, how long it'll take for me to go and do something. Is that within reason for your time frame? You know, I think it is like, again, it goes back to that scope statement. It might be again, in project management, we've talked about racy charts. We talked about also how, how are you baking in contingency? And I know that particularly in project management, we talked about contingency as in like a dollar amount, like 10%, like. You also have to be aware that the time it takes, if something doesn't work out, like, are you baking in 10%? Are you taking it? Are you baking in 15%, 20% in order for whatever it is? Like, for example, like if you're building a social asset, like how long is it going to derail you or delay the project before it gets signed off? And that's really tricky because like what happens, and this is how I'm going to ask for an example or like a case is you are so you've started this project we're going to go and situate this based on like the example you have uh given before which was building social asset so you've had your initial meeting with the client the client has signed off you also now understand you think you understand what the client is asking for so you're running the project two weeks later your client's just gone mia You've tried to write to them. You've called them. You've, I don't know, like what other like appropriate means of communication has, has been like exercised. Mm -hmm. What do you do now that your client has gone MIA? Because on the receiving end, you're thinking, okay, did you get my emails? Are you, do you hate what I've done? Like, am I so off point? Like what, what am I so what happens in a scenario like that? Because you're managing expectations and we've talked about how this is about communication. What do I do now? I think you send increasingly urgent and important emails. You know, obviously there are clients who are a little bit smaller and that means there's much more of an intimate connection just on a person to person end. you know, that person probably has a a lot of day-to-day stuff going on on top of whatever their personal life is. So I think kind of having that understanding and a bit of grace uh, to it, but, you know, again, like fairness and firmness, right? Like you are upholding your end of the bargain and you also have a timeline that you're going off of. So if your client's not responsive to you, you know, you check in, then you check in with urgency And then you check in with urgency, thoroughness, and importance, right? So laying, what I mean by urgency is saying, hey, trying to keep this project on track. Are you okay? You know, please let me know if if I can get an update. Urgency and importance, right? That is saying, hey, listen, I have reached this stage in the project. This is what I have come up with so far. 
I would love to continue uh, going forward with this project. However, there are these roadblocks and obstacles in the way. That also requires a level of thoroughness as well. It's giving yourself, you know, that sort of, hey, this is not on me. You know, I've upheld my end of the bargain. Saying to the uh, client, giving that first a little bit softer message at first, then something that is a little that is a lot more firm to attest that, hey, like, you know, this is the contract. I mean, this is what we have agreed to. This is where I'm at so far. And if you do have to do a third, right, if then, you know, you know, if it's keeping you from receiving payment, if it's detrimental, you know, if, if you're getting to a point where this lack of communication or time between communication is detrimental to the status of the project, letting that person know that you shouldn't have to send more than two, three emails to a client to, you know, I think that's a good rule of thumb. If there is some sense of absence coming from the, coming from the client, I, I would say Again, increasing order of urgency and importance in, in the communication so that your client understands, one, you are taking this project very seriously, by proxy taking them very seriously, and two, you're being as clear and as thoughtful and as mindful as possible. Does not mean you email them every day. Give it a few days to at least a week most between your that initial email, right? If it's two to three days between the initial email, that's fine. However, I would say, hey, just make sure you're steadfast in it because end of the day, like you're putting your art out there, your craft out there for com for commerce sake. You should make sure that everything you put out there is being rewarded in some way. I would also add that if your client is a relatively small client, you can always pick up the phone and that's also true that's yeah. also true and if things get really bad like bad meaning like you really just don't seem to be able to find this person and if it's possible i would actually just drive and see or like be like hi i'm not sure if you're okay because like i'm slightly concerned now because at the end of the day it's sort of what you've said bennett it's person to person so if you're not you have to establish that relationship reminding yourself and the other person that like i am a person i'm waiting for you but now that you haven't written back to me i'm slightly concerned for whatever reason not necessarily only because that the project might be delayed but like are you okay like is there something that i need to know that might actually impact the project which is fine but like you need to actually also tell me so again like managing expectation and managing yourself as well as your client so what does it look like to go and pitch to a client you know like you've managed the thing you've signed off on the project everyone is aware of what the scope is who's doing what what is the timeline what is the budget and like we sort of talked loosely about a scenario about maintaining relationship with the client what happens or what does that how does it look like for you to go and pitch to a client where where is this in terms of like the timeline is that like at the very beginning of when the client comes in and they have a brief, is it after, is it every single time when you come up with the new quote unquote solution? Like yeah. what is, what is a pitch? When does it happen? Well, a, a, a pitch is kind of code for a proposal, right? 
uh, when you are a creator slash freelancer, you're kind of pitching yourself twice, right? You're pitching somebody on who you are, what you're coming to the table with, and then you're pitching them with what you're willing to place on the table. Uh, so that first part is okay. And, uh, you know, agent, larger agencies go through this, but also smaller studios as well. And they're pitching for clients, uh, on, you know, different sizes and scopes. But the biggest thing is, Hey, this client is usually sending out a request to receive proposals. We usually call that in the business an RFP, so request for proposals. That's where the client is saying, hey, we have this need. We need a partner in this design studio, ad agency, what have you, to come up with ideas that sufficiently fulfill the needs that we're looking for. So you're first pitching like, okay, who am I? You know, I am this art director or I am this head of an agency and this is the work that we've done before, right? So that's kind of the the introduction to it. If you're approved for that, then there's usually in the business, we call it an RFI, so a request for information, right? So, you know, that's when they ask, hey, what are your creds? And how does that look, right? So it could be a website. It usually is a deck because a lot of stuff is confidential. Probably best to put it in a PDF that you can just hand off to a to a client uh, at any at any given notice. So once you're approved to be a company that pitches uh, for a piece of business, then that's our the RFP phase in which you have to come up with ideas, right? It can look as small as, okay, we need some logo ideas and here are, you know, a minimum amount of them. Usually it's three, you know, if you're doing anything larger than, you know, if you're doing anything, and I mean larger than in the sense that nobody's going to be pitching you for headlines. Nobody's going to be pitching you for people will probably be pitched for logos. Like logos are very important parts of, and they're very important parts of a brand or business identity. So that may be something, uh, but it's usually something where it's a larger piece of identity work. So logos, uh, color palettes, designs, you know, assets that really fit around how your brand is meant to be experienced in the world or something tangible and executionable like a campaign. So if you have ideas for social content or for television ads, you're usually positioning three or so ideas just so that the client has some sort of, it's a mix of breath and brevity, so a breath of how they can be experienced in the world in accordance to that brief, but also brevity because you do not want to overwhelm that client with so many ideas that their brains explode. So that's usually how you have to go about how you have to go about most briefs. Uh, there's 
like no two briefs are necessarily the same, but there's usually good categories, right? So obviously social television and broadcast or integrated or branding and design. Uh, there's definitely different categories where, you know, clients will approach you and ask for, you know, just this very creative point of view. When this is time to call it quits, do you, do you, have you ever called it quits with a client? You're like, that's unfiring you. You're like, can't do this anymore. Um, I personally haven't. I haven't. Has I... the agency? Um, uh, my gosh, I think my agency has not. Usually it's the other way around in which the client is just like, we no longer require your services or they're, you know, they put a pitch out where you have to depend to defend your standing as either agency of record or, you know, an agency that gets to work on the project. So I think it, that when it's the other way around and you have to let go of a client for a reason, right. Then I think it, you know, I think you try to make it as personable as possible, depending on who the client is. So I would say, I hate to say treat it like dating, but the more important that client is to you and the more, uh, the deeper of a bond you've had with that client as, as a vendor, as a partner, as an agency, so to speak agency or consultant, so to speak, you know, you want to have a conversation with them because maybe the client act doesn't want you to leave them and uh, people can be sensitive no matter whether it's in a relationship, a romantic relationship or a business partnership. So I would say if it's close enough, I mean, the ideal situation is set up time for a call, you know, set up time for kind of an exit call in in a sense i think that is probably the most professional but also the most real way to do it email if it needs i mean and email i think is absolutely necessary just because if you are discontinuing a or severing a tie like like a business relationship you also have to cover your ass legally so some business relationships end and it's amicable, some do not. And it's, you know, it's something that, you know, I know business leaders see play out on the news. It's why they have to like take out insurance uh, on their, you know, their agencies, you know, in businesses because they don't want to be in a situation where it's not an amicable or yeah, an amiable partnership or at least end to a partnership. So making sure that you are clear and communicative and also again, firmness comes to mind, right? Because if you're breaking up with somebody, you're probably breaking up with that, that person for a reason. Sometimes it can be them and it's definitely up to your discretion as to how much you feel is worth disclosing 
uh, in terms like, especially when it comes to the business and how business was conducted, you know, and, and that's fine. But if you can get a phone call, if you can have a proper conversation with this person, because maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that, maybe, Hey, there's some life stuff going on. And unfortunately I will have to uh, shut down my services. You're a pleasure to work with. I hope to reconnect in another time, another lifetime. But this is this is the thing. Maybe you get a full-time opportunity somewhere, right? And it's something where your bandwidth gets in the way. So how do you leave a cushion for that client, right? To make them feel like they're valued, right? Because... A lot of EQ. Yeah, a no, lot of EQ and like exercising that empathy and curiosity and openness in order for you to go and maintain that relationship, whether you want to go and forge forward or whether you actually want to go and sever that. It's just it's exercising empathy and like just knowing what your EQ is. I would say sort of that's what I can hear that you're you're alluding to. Yeah. All right. So um, I'm going to ask you a few questions about like job searches or industry specific things. And I'm looking off to the side because I have a series of questions here. If I'm currently trying to go and break into the industry, what type of questions should I be asking someone like you? Is it hard to work in in your industry? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I, you know, I, I think the the questions to ask culture. I think culture is a huge question. Right, because you're not just getting paid, you have to interact with people on a mostly daily basis. You know, they can become your friends, they can become partners outside of work for stuff. So at least understanding culture, understanding the infrastructure. So yes, in a way, like I'm speaking specifically on like, what's the hierarchy like? Is it a flat, you know, is it like built in more of a flat situation where there's a lot of people who tend to, who are kind of all pulled together and it's a little bit more loose in terms of who's really managing. And that could be a situation where you can float from project to project. You have your leads, but you have some sense of autonomy or you have your kind of more stringent and strict uh, hierarchies where everybody kind of has their position and it's easy to see based on experience and talent you know who needs to be in a managerial or director level role who needs to be in a c-suite level sometimes some places are great with delineating what separates a junior designer from a senior designer or at a mid-level designer to a senior designer or just the director level to, to senior level. Oh, it takes skill sets uh, to that you add on to what you're usually showing up with. So I think it's culture, it's how the agency is structured, uh, room for growth and opportunity and managers. So I think growth and opportunity usually is tied, you know, yes, it's tied loosely to infrastructure, but it's more tied to managers and uh, and departments right what is this organization doing to make sure that their talent their employees are set up for the highest level of success possible and what is in place for that employee to 
feel like they can hold themselves accountable during that process? I, I think those are really the the key questions that you know that you should ask. So I think that's beyond else. like a um, a portfolio or a CV. It's like for me, I, mean, I think it's always like, do you have my back? So when it, something yeah. happens, do you have my back to know that I can actually trust you? And that's like that's a massive part of culture where yeah. I, I have to say that most companies won't have that for you. Then um, you're sort of just left thrown under the bus. And if you signed up for that, you're on a contract and your contract isn't and for a very long time, then, you know, that sort of gives you a really good indication as to whether you want to continue on with the company or not. Yeah. And I think it also allows you to say, hey, this is the place that I need to go to. One, I mean, to the point about the portfolio, I mean, portfolio is by all accounts, extremely important. But if you're approaching somebody like me and saying, hoping that you're getting a job out of the expectation is that you want to be considered for a job, you got to bring in the portfolio anyway. That's the question I would ask, ask the individual like, Hey, what does your book look like? But I think for that person, it really is like, okay, I know the cards that I have. I know my talent. I know my skill level, or maybe I don't necessarily know my skill level. And I'd love for you to see, you know, see my portfolio and see if, you know, it matches up. I, I think yeah. it really is culture, infrastructure, you know, and just your personal opportunities for growth on the way to success. Looking for a job. I think that the job market it's so industry specific as to what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that when you have enough experience, you're able to go leverage your network to go and see whether there are opportunities available. Because I think most of the time when you're sort of coming in from a different industry and you want to take a skill set that you have learned and acquired from university and you're applying into this field, you're looking at something like a LinkedIn or you're looking at something maybe like Indeed. Is that the only, especially I think because the creative industry doesn't necessarily operate like this. I think that we have a different way of looking for opportunities and openings. And a lot of times it is from word of mouth because yeah. things are locked. You know, like we were just mm -hmm. talking about this, that you, when you're submitting your portfolio, never just send it out randomly. It's always password locked. It is only sent via somebody has referred you to something else because, you know, I think prior up to that, it's that it was just so easy. I remember in my undergrad, it was during graduation and people had their books out. Some of those books just straight up just got stolen. And like, that's concerning because now you're just like, are you copying my work? Or are you not copying my work? And, and that's sort of why a lot of things, especially in the creative industry, they're locked. They're only accessible based on referral where someone's going to give you that password. And you sort of know that, you know, if you're up for this position, that password locked is that the person probably not just going to look at the thing and like, forget about it. You know what I mean? Cause like they're reviewing so many things at the same time that you, yeah. you don't necessarily think that your, your work is going to be stolen or anything but i am interested in knowing sort of navigating this i'm looking for an opening position what am i doing am i looking on the indeeds am i looking on linkedin how can i leverage my network to, to know upcoming openings or even like a general meeting before i even get a job gosh i think 
if you can find a way to connect that person or I was just at a conference last week talking to educators actually about a similar question or at least answering a question in a similar way to this where the truth of the matter is so much of so much of what indeed and linkedin does is just give you a pool of candidates that you can kind of take or leave as a recruiter when the honest truth is so many jobs are actually given to people because of a referral like i can look at literally most of my jobs now and say wow like most of the jobs that i did get are because somebody referred you know somebody has worked with me before or somebody knows somebody who worked with me and uh, that was it it's usually no more than like one maybe two degrees of separation and still apply through the method because at least like all your information is there just in case but if you can find a way to close that gap if you can at least do that and uh, you know whether that means talking directly to a recruiter and having a conversation with them or somebody who is if they're a second level connection right who on your first level connections on linkedin might be connected to that person that can speak up on your behalf because a lot of job stuff hell, when I worked at retail, you still needed references, right? So it doesn't necessarily change when you step into a, into a more creative situation. You need to be someone that the people you know trust. Uh, sometimes before you can trust them yourself. I can't, I can't like count enough times I've had conversations where, you know, I didn't necessarily know that person as well as that person had known about me because it was somebody that I'd previously worked with or was personal friends with that said, hey, Ben, it's really great. Not just somebody who's like great to talk to, but he knows what he's doing. You want to have that sort of feeling in all your connections with people because it's hard. Like it, it genuinely, you can apply to five, six, you know, different channels, whether that's LinkedIn, Indeed, whatever else there is to to find a job uh, and know that like every recruiter is going to be thinking about things differently. They are usually on a time, a timeline themselves and may not give uh, you the proper value to your day that you deserve. Uh, in ter- and I mean that in terms of, you know, interviewing you for the sake of interviewing you, knowing they might have somebody lined up and they're just going through it. Uh, so I would just like really, really hearken on making sure you stay close with people who are going to help you, you know, fulfill those dreams that you have. I was watching something very recently where the person was saying that you know, when you go to uni, you acquire knowledge and skill. Yeah. And then there are other things sort of outside of uni that they they cannot teach you and it's custom to you as a person, like how well that is received and delivered. And two of those things are resources and reputation. They're really hard to sort of actually hone in and practice because your reputation isn't really you. It's things that you do that people perceive you. And so if you're not out there networking, talking to people and talking to people you don't know, you don't really necessarily have a reputation. 
And because you don't have that, then you also don't have the resources to be able to go and tap into quote unquote a network to go and understand um, what a position could be. Are there openings? And I think that, you know, it is really kind of tricky and daunting at the very beginning because I think about it now. A lot of times I actually look at the people inside an organization that I think I might be interested in. But I don't 100% know because I have a very limited vantage point based on what I think the organization is like and how well they treat their staff. So then I email the, I cold email all the time and I cold email the, like whoever it is and be like, hi, I'm, I'm interested in the company. Can I like speak to you? Just you start, I guess, like networking, but you're establishing a new relationship just to know whether this is even the organizational structure and culture that you want to be a part of. I think when you're starting your career, a lot of times you're doing things based on how well known a company is. Like, I definitely have been there, you know, like, I think that you do sort of need these like really big names to go and secure the CV, or maybe that's like a really old way of looking at it. But like, certainly that, you know, your first couple of positions, internships, whatever, are really big companies. And again, like I said, like, I have those as well, because I think that it gives me the validity or legitimacy that was needed to have the resources and the reputation when I work. But I think that it is it has changed where you are able to go and directly see who works in what organization that you think you're interested in and just start that conversation and see like whether even a junior position is something and getting feedback on your work, you know, because that is another way in to go and say like, it's not saying, hey, I want you to give me a job because like that it never really like goes well and unless you're applying for this specific position. But if you're allowed to go and ask for feedback for your work to go and do better or to, because like you don't have the skills, what, whatever it is, like find a, an excuse, I think, or find a reason to go and open that discussion up. More likely than not, when somebody sees that you're interested in them, their work, the company, they're, they're going to give you the time mm -hmm. because like then you're matching your skill set and what you see to what it is that they have done. And that is a dialogue that I think most people are open with, especially when, you know, the world of AI is opening up. Like, what does that look like? You know, like you're, you're, you can actually leverage what you know and open that conversation up. So you, it's a beneficial conversation for both sides for, you know, you're bringing a completely new breath of fresh air for the person's like thought process. process. Okay. Um, so that, so, so do you use LinkedIn is my question. I feel like I've had many conversations with other creatives with LinkedIn and our consensus is that LinkedIn is limited when it comes to the creative industry. Why I say that is because it first, it wasn't built for the creative industry. It was built for the business world, which makes a lot of sense. However, also like last week you sent me a post. And I said to you, I can't say this. This is locked. But mm -hmm. I didn't even know that that could happen, quite frankly. And you're like, oh, okay, hold on. Let me just like take a screenshot for you. Or like, I'll just actually send you directly the link to this company, mm -hmm. which is called Critical Mass. Yeah. So this is the thing. It's like the creative industry, we have a lot of things that are behind closed off walls. Because again, it's more often than not by referral. 
And referral doesn't necessarily mean because like you're best mates with the person. Referral is meaning that you've engaged with the conversation once to go and inquire to see whether you both match in some sort of skill set, your vision, something before you can actually go and like launch into the next step. And I think that the need to make that like really, really clear is that we do keep a lot of things behind closed doors because that's just what the industry is like. And why things need to be by referral is based on trust. I trust that you'll deliver on time. I trust the level of work that you're producing. You understand my brand and that you're able to go and match what like the aesthetic of whatever it is. And so like that level of trust is why we only do things by referral because design is subjective. Creativity is subjective. And if we don't match, then it's like, it's not that there's something wrong with your skill set. It's that we just don't match. Our outlooks don't match. Our aesthetics don't match. It's not, it's not like about nepotism or anything else. Like there's an actual reason as to why the process looks very different. Whereas in business school, I think you're, you're qualified in a completely different set of skills where it's standardized and people understand that. In the creative sector, it isn't standardized. It's not objective. It's very subjective because you're delivering results or outputs that are completely based on branding and what the brand aesthetic looks like. Just like what Bennett was saying, you know, for BBDO, they have a specific look that they're going for. Their branding is a thing that their clients are looking for, whether it's CBS, whether it's Pepsi, whether like they are, they're asking the agency to go and deliver this look for them to do something very specific. And again, that's why things are always locked behind closed doors. If I get to this position, like if I now find a position, okay, I now know that LinkedIn doesn't necessarily lead me to wherever. I don't really have people. I don't really have a network because I'm like very green in this. What do I do? I don't want to say LinkedIn gets a bad rap. It was not really built for creatives, but I would say... LinkedIn shouldn't be the only way you connect with people. I made so much of my career from Twitter, you know, and it helps when you're a writer that you can just find a way to connect with other writers. Uh, again, I mean, it, it goes to, it goes without saying that how an artist or how a creator presents themselves online today is is easily as important as the work they're putting out there. So whatever you can do to visually, uh, to kind of publicly put that out there, whether that's adding some cool work to, or talking about your work, right? So I think part of it is learning how to talk about your work in public. And public nowadays means I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram, I'm on whatever Twitter or X is, right? And this is my, not just my way of selling myself, but my way of just being able to speak about the world. If, yes, there's the old adage, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody is there to listen, it doesn't make a sound. It definitely does make a sound, you know, and I say this as a former physics major. It definitely does make a sound. It's just that where do you want to fall? You want to fall around the people who can hear that impact and can hopefully do something about it. So putting yourself in the places where you're potentially wanted will likely leave you in a higher possibility to receive one general levels of attention, right? Because you're going to get attention that you don't want, 
But in the midst of all that noise of the things you don't want, there's probably going to be the people who resonate with what you're bringing to the table and resonate with how you think about things. And you should at least listen to them and give them a, a sort of moment to see if you can build a bond, see if you can have conversation. And even the situations where it is individuals that you may not necessarily want to form a bond with, are they connected with people you do want to be connected with? And what sacrifice, you know, and then it's a matter of like, okay, do I just give this person a chance and maybe they're like not so bad after all, or maybe this is truly a transaction and I have to be honest with myself about what I want to get out of this, how much respect that person is still owed for being in my purview and at least making enough of an investment. And, you know, how much am I going to give up, you know, in the midst of doing all this? You're one of the most well-networked people that I know. And I mean, quite frankly, I don't really know how you do it. I don't, how, how are you networking? Are you going out to go see people in the real world? Are you using Twitter? Is it all of the above? Is it only Twitter? Do you also do Instagram? Um, what are you, what's your strategy? My strategy is, I, I think my cheat code is that, you know, I'm in New York. I'm a New Yorker, so there's a lot that goes into, hey, a lot of it is accessible to me. <clears throat> but I'm also a child of the internet and a child of bogs like Tumblr. So, uh, you know, I feel like I was kind of made for an information age where you can just put thoughts out there. So I think those are, you know, those are my advantages and privileges, so to speak. Uh, but also my name's Bennett Bennett. So I think I always like to say the misnomer about me is like, oh, I love networking and it's just like no i mean part of it is i do genuinely like people and i love learning and i love not being the smartest person in the room but i actually hate networking because networking feels fully transactional and as a new yorker i do not have time to network for the sake of networking uh if i show up to an event and i really feel passionately about it i'll go but a lot of times I'll go, I'll go with my initial rule of thumb being, who can I bring with me? Like, I just, I think so much of my career in life have been uh, a beneficiary, a mutual beneficiary of, of the buddy system. I, I used to bring friends to conferences I would go to, and I wasn't just going to conferences. I was volunteering at conferences. It was like, do I want to be an attendee, shell out a bunch of money, or do I want to be a volunteer, maybe have some like roundabout access to people through whoever's organizing the event or, you know, just being close to panelists. People will, I mean, if you're wearing a t-shirt for a conference, people will ask you questions and you never know who they are. And uh, a lot of times it may be college students. It may be older people who are doing career transitions. So... I was willing to do the extra effort just to say, okay, school isn't teaching me enough. What can I, what else can I do? Oh, I know how to volunteer because my parents made me volunteer all the time as a kid. So I can lean on that and see what opportunities came up. Like my first, how I ended up becoming a journalist 
was because I volunteered for a conference called Advertising Week. I blogged. They let me blog about my journey into the industry. And the guy who gave me that opportunity, he and I lost touch. I was going through a lot of personal stuff and he was really gracious and said, listen, take all the time you need. And we reconnected years later when he was in a different position at a different place and said, hey, you want to work? You want to write? I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll write. And that one volunteer opportunity when I was a college kid turned into a freelance opportunity when I was very unhappy at my agency position. And that freelance position turned into working full time together. And he eventually left that position. But we stayed in touch and we still get to do projects alongside each other. So again, you know, do you just want to show up or do you just want to or do you want to show up knowing that you have value and volunteering, you know, more than anything is a really good way to do that. So if there are local trade organizations, you know, if there's an AIGA like in your vicinity, that might be a good place to start. Uh, I know, you know, there's also, yes, online opportunities to, uh, to mentor with different communities or to be a mentee in different communities. So they're out there. I, I think there's this one organization called Women Who Create, founded by this amazing woman named Shauna Zimmerman. Um, well, Shauna Margaret, um, she will probably kill me for using her proper last name, but Shauna Margaret is an amazing uh, creative director in her own right. And she all she has done is build a resource for women in different creative fields whether they're traditional advertising careers or not, to find community, to find each other. So finding those groups is important, you know, and it's usually low lift. It's like, okay, this is a Slack channel. This is a WhatsApp group. This is a people use GroupMe, right? And it's not as chaotic as a Twitter. It's not as algorithm driven as an Instagram. It literally gives you a bunch of people who are already sharing links with each other, already sharing resources. So when you can get into groups like that, it's much easier because you're not just getting to know about the hundreds of people who are in this network. Those hundreds of people are going to get to know you. So again, you know, do you just want to show up in a situation like that? Or do you want to show up providing value? Because that's going to... Uh, separate you individually from the rest of the collective and turn you into not just, oh, this person is talented, has a cute portfolio. Oh, this person said some like really smart, but also funny stuff about the Barbie movie that I really felt was important. Uh, and I'd like to have another conversation with this person or this person because of that conversation reminds me of another person that they should probably know. 100%. Well, thank you so much for your time. No problem. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.